browser permissions, allow browser permissions by clicking on the lock icon to the left of the URL. Where is the lock icon? Yeah, I can see. And then camera allow, yeah. The voice you hear belongs to Professor Gilad Zuckerman, noted language revivalist and chair of Endangered Languages at the University of Adelaide, Australia. We're having a little trouble communicating. We can hear each other perfectly, but we're on a video conference call and he can't make his camera work. I told him, you know, it's fine, this is for a podcast, we don't need to see you, but he's pretty insistent. Eventually, he calls the university's IT department for help. Let's see, they're answering. Squad cam. Good afternoon, IT and digital services. It's Michael. Oh, Michael, can I give you... When we first talked about doing an episode on reviving dead languages, we weren't trying to be topical. But as it happens, one dead language is in the news this week. Latin, which the government wants to introduce to state secondary schools. A plan that is drawing the kind of complaints you'd expect about the merits of teaching a dead language. And Latin is a properly dead language, in the sense that nobody actually speaks it. Although a Catholic priest once told me that when priests from different countries meet up, they sometimes communicate in a sort of dog Latin, making up new words for modern terms like microwave. I've had some trouble verifying all this. When I typed priests talking to each other in Latin into Google, I got interse locuti sunt sacerdotis, which is priests talking to each other in Latin. Anyway... Today's episode isn't about Latin. It's not about teaching dead languages, it's about reviving them. We're focusing on languages that are under threat of extinction, where maybe only a few speakers remain, or perhaps all the native speakers have died, but where efforts are being made to reintroduce a lost tongue to the people whose forebears spoke it. This is about a lot more than teaching. This is about re-establishing identity, restoring links with the past, and setting a course for the future. It's about taking a form of communication that has lain dormant over generations and bringing it back into the light. <laughs> yeah. It's okay, worked. thank you so much, Michael. Take care. Okay. No, bye. Bye bye. Amazing. Okay. <laughs> I didn't hear that. Yeah, I can hear you. Welcome to Insult My Intelligence. Currently, 40% of the 6,000 languages worldwide are considered to be endangered. These languages are predominantly found in Australasia, the Americas, Africa, and Asia. Gilad Zuckerman, who is from Israel and now lives in Australia, has been working for nearly a decade with the Bangala tribe in Port Lincoln in South Australia. In Bangala, you have singular, dual, plural, and superplural. And let me give you an example. The word for emu, you know, emu is like a, uh, an ostrich. Yeah, emu. Uh, we have it in Australia. Um, the word for emu in Bangla is waraija. Waraija is one emu. If I want to, if I see two emus, I say waraijalbili. If I see more, I say waraijari. This is a plural emus. But if suddenly I see like, dozens of emus, like I see heaps of emus, you know, like lots of emus, I do not say warajari, I say warajaliarana, warajaliarana. So we have waraja, warajalbili, warajari, warajaliarana. Four possibilities. 
singular, dual, plural, superplural. But there are some endangered languages in Europe, and even a handful in the British Isles. That's Julia Salabank, Professor of Language Policy at SOAS University, speaking Jernissier, the language of Guernsey, which is estimated to have only around 200 speakers. Julia Salabank is one of them, and she's part of an effort to revive the language. Before we get into that, I should say that a discipline like language revitalization, which comes bundled with sensitivities regarding cultural identity, heritage, race, colonialism, ownership, linguistic purity, and the law, is an absolute political minefield. Throughout this episode, you will hear me trying to negotiate this field without stepping on anything. From the beginning. My first mistake was referring to them as dead languages. Yeah, the word death is, is not PC anymore with languages. Um, I can see that it's a loaded term, but what, what, what is the, why don't you explain why that is not a good idea? Um, well, there's a quote from David Crystal's book, Language Death, which was published in 2000. And round about 2000, there was a lot of publication, flurry, flurry of interest in this area. Um, and people, a lot of people realizing that linguistic diversity was reducing around the world. And, and Crystal wrote something about death being final and a language can't be heard anymore if nobody speaks it anymore. But people very soon kind of pointed out that actually this is not true. One of the things that linguists have been trying to do, and a lot of people would be doing, have been doing before the latest round of interest in this, is to record and document languages um, while there are still speakers. Um, partly for linguistic purposes, linguistic topology, finding out how languages work. Um, we found things out about languages that we would never have known if they disappeared before we had recorded them. So uh, the guy who used to be in the office next to me record, uh, recorded a language in the Caucasus, which has got the most number of consonants and the least number of uh, vowels in the, in the world. And you would never have thought it was possible to speak like that. Um, but but um, there are a lot of languages which have been, so say, brought back from the dead, um, mm -hmm. to use the non-PC terms. And if you look at Cornish, you look at Manx, um, when the... When UNESCO published its um, Atlas of Languages in Danger in 2009, they, they categorized Manx as extinct. And there was a big outcry, well, a small outcry, because it's not a very big island, but from the Isle of Man. Um, and various other places too, like Cornwall and, and uh, Latgalian in, in Latvia, for example, various Australian languages, uh, North American languages, people have started to revive them, um, working out, um, how they were spoken and and reinventing them if necessary. Um, in a way, along the lines of Hebrew, it was just, um, a different example. It's kind of different, different kind of kettle of fish. But um, yeah, people don't like their languages being called dead. Um, yeah. the, the the native Australians, the the indigenous people of Australia, uh, prefer the term sleeping languages. Julia just mentioned Hebrew, which is a particularly interesting example. Some people cite Hebrew as the most successful and even the only major example of language revitalization ever to take place. Hebrew stopped being spoken in around 200 AD, but was revived in the 19th century and now has millions of native speakers. But Gilad Zuckerman doesn't exactly view it this way. You say it's the most successful revival language, and I agree with that. However, 
it is not the success that Hoi Poloi, the, the Nomis, believe it was. Because the Nomis, the Hoi Poloi, they're the masses, they believe that I speak the language of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, not Isaiah Leibovich. I'm saying, no, when you revive a language, even if you're successful, cross-fertilization with a revivalist's mother tongues is inevitable, unavoidable. You must have cross-fertilization. So Eliezer ben Yehuda, born Perlman, wanted Israelis to speak like Arabs. But when I speak Israeli, just like when any other Israeli speaks Israeli, except many, maybe the Yem- my Yemenite girlfriend's kind of great-grandparents, we sound like Yiddish speakers. We do not pronounce the Ein like Gilad. My name was Gilad. We say Gilad. Gilad. Uh, we do not pronounce the Chet, like in Arabic, I love you. You know, with this Ha, we don't pronounce. We say instead of Habub, we say Habib, we say Chaviv. Just like in English, Loch Ness. It's a or in German, Aachen, you know, Aquisgrana. So uh, we do not have the intonation of uh, Semitic languages. We sound just like uh, uh, Yiddish. We do not have the word order like in Hebrew. We have it just like Yiddish, which happens to be like in English. We do not have the semantics of the Bible. Israelis totally misunderstand the Bible and they do not realize it because they think, oh, we understand everything. Because, you know, if you're kind of a Spa- Spaniard, you, you open the book and say, oh, shit, I do not understand the, the script, what is written here. And even if you read the script, you say, shit, I do not understand what it means. Israelis, they read the script, <laughs> because we use the same script. They, they read the, the word, like, ekdach, you know, oh, yeah, it's, it means a pistol. Yeah, of course, it doesn't mean, or, or you know, that's the first um, line, the first phrase, uh, verse in the Bible. Israelis cannot understand it. They think they understand it. Believe me, they don't understand it. So Israeli, on the one hand, is the most successful language revival to date. On the other hand, it provides us with an exquisite laboratory to look at what is revivable and what is unrevivable. Why does it provide us with an an exquisite laboratory because it is currently the native language of six million people. Zuckerman's work on Hebrew made him a controversial figure in Israel, politically if not academically. He's been accused of being both an anti-Zionist and an ultra-nationalist. Like I said before, a minefield. Now back to Julius Salabank, who has experience working to revitalize languages within the British Isles. There are 7,000 languages in the world, give or take, and this, the other statistic that struck me is that 50% of the global population speaks one of the top 20. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's, we don't know how to speak one language. Is it the, the kind of the, there's a whole monolingual mindset that goes with the Western kind of mind view um, that you have to give up one language to learn another one. And actually, most of the population of the world is multilingual, at least bilingual. So when people say, why don't we all just speak the same language don't we all want to speak one language wasn't that the sort of global idea it's you're saying we should there's it's not only acceptable but uh beneficial to speak it's absolutely beneficial there are documented um scientifically proven benefits to being bilingual cognitively um it has been proven to 
um, delay the onset of dementia um, by perhaps three to five years. Um, that's not going to. That's not say it's going. It's definitely going to do that. But um, in, in in experiments that's been found, um, children do better at school if they're bilingual and if all their languages are both fully developed at school. That's a big if. <laughs> now, I guess a lot of people would say, uh, a lot of parents would say, if my child is going to learn another language, I would want it to be another one of the top twenty, so that they would be be able to communicate with the most people. What are the specific? Mm-hmm. Uh, advantages of of revitalizing endangered languages? Um, it's a link with your. I mean, this is a what we call perhaps essentialist argument: the link between language and identity and and culture. Um, for a lot of people, learning a big language, yeah, could be useful for a job or something. And yes, you could go say to France and you could speak French with people there. Um, but um, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't really give you any kind of emotional satisfaction necessarily. Um, if you have a language in your heritage, um, for instance, I, my, my, my mother comes from Guernsey and I've always been interested in learning Genesee, the, the indigenous language, uh, which is now spoken by very, very few people, under 100 mm. probably. Um, and I've always been fascinated by it. And so when I got the chance, um, when I started my PhD, I, I, I started to study it and I started to learn it. And it really, I really enjoy it. It's it's really, um, you can't really understand it if you haven't experienced it. It's sort of visceral um, sort of warmth in your tummy when you're speaking your heritage language with your friends. You've mentioned, because uh, I, I think we, a lot of people, when they think about language endangerment, they would immediately think about Africa or the South Pacific, or Native American tribes in America. Um, but you've already mentioned several that are from the British yeah. Isles. You've mentioned yeah. Manx, Cornish, uh, Guernsey. Guernsey, yeah. I don't know why it's so difficult for English speakers. <laughs> and Jersey has a distinct yes, language yes. from Guernsey. Jersey, yes. And yes. so does Sark. Doesn't. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes. Well done. Yes, very. And Alderney, language. I think. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, no fluent speakers at the moment. Um, you know, Alderney was was fully depopulated during the Second World War, taken prison camp, and at that point, speakers were dispersed around the UK and never really kind of uh, got to speaking it again. Yeah. I'm presuming all those island languages are uh, related, and they're all. My understanding is they're sort of related to Norman French. But yes. Yes. So, I mean, what? How do you? I know this is probably a blurry mm. distinction, but how do you make a distinction between a language and a, and a dialect? Uh, Are there uh-huh. rules? Uh, yes and no. Some linguists would say there are rules. Some linguists would say it's where the difference is whether or not they're mutually comprehensible. Um, okay. But that's not cut and dry because it depends to a large extent on on your point of view whether you want to understand somebody. Um, right. um, so, Scandinavian languages are all pretty much mutually comprehensible. Um, Spanish and Italian are more or less. Um, um, uh, some some linguists were called Romance, basically one language, and all of the Romance languages are dialects of Romance. If you, for example, think of Quechua as one language, there are actually seven Quechuan languages, um, with linguists, or nine even, I think, that linguists recognize. Um, uh, it, it depends on your, on your point of view. Um, various languages, Southern Africa, I think, Setswana, Soto, uh, essentially the same language divided by um, artificial boundaries. And, and, and language, because of this link between language and identity, and then comes the sense for national identity, um, in various wars and struggles of the last century, different Scandinavian languages 
were, were um, identified and then bolstered and, 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 and developed as national languages. So sometimes languages get pulled apart into separate languages yep. for political reasons. It happened in it, it happened in Yugoslavia to an extent. Absolutely, yes, 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 and deliberately. Um, right. So, for example, Serbo-Croat was pulled apart, um, and I actually one of my, one of my the cohort I did my PhD and did a PhD on this. Um, so, in Serbia, on the Serbian side, they would in, in, have loan words from Slavic languages, Russian particularly, and a different alphabet. Um, and on the Croat side, they they had more borrowings from Western European languages. Uh, where do you? Be, I guess I was going to say, where do you begin when you haven't got yeah. many fluent speakers mm. to work with, and in some cases you haven't got recordings? Mm. Um, well, of course, yeah, you make recordings of people that you can. Yeah, um, in the case of Cornish, for example, um, it wasn't possible to make recordings uh, because the laws well. Actually, there is a bit of a discourse of continuity because it said that the last native speaker died in about 200 years ago, but she was the last monolingual speaker of Cornish rather than the last speaker. Right. So there have been people speaking a little bit ever since. Um, but what you do often is you look at the surrounding languages. In the case of Cornish, they'll look at Breton and Welsh and say Cornish is between Breton and Welsh, so this is how it might have been spoken. And they'll do a lot of historical linguistic research. Um, there, there's some quite good records, um, written records of Cornish. If there are any spoken records, there are written records. So yeah. the linguist and, has a big role to play in, in oh, this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You have to get, I suppose yeah. you have to have that. It's that link that gets missing, which is sometimes yeah. the, the young natives yeah. who yeah. don't speak mm. the language, who, who speak whatever the dominant mm. language is, and they yeah. don't, they tend to not see the point. Or... Um, some do, some don't. Yeah, that, that's part. I think a big part of it is attitudes. As I mentioned before, attitudes play a big part in 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 languages declining. So it's really important to start with that attitudes. There's whole field of language planning. In terms of efforts in Guernsey, as in, just as an example, because you you you're part of it. Um, what is what are the sort of steps that that haven't been taken that sh that you think ought to be taken or could be taken? <sighs> Well, for example, last year, on the 20th of August, the government in Guernsey voted to make Genesee an official language of Guernsey, which is the first time it's ever been recognised. They also voted um, to spend £100,000 on the language for the next three years. But so far, they haven't actually done anything with that money. Um, so what I'm trying to do with people in Guernsey, it is not just me, uh, um, you know, various people from the community are saying, hang on, you know, you said you do this and you haven't. Um, so we're trying to set up meetings with politicians and civil servants. Is, is stuff like shop signs and road signs, uh, mm -hmm. is that is that a, a good thing or is that is that yeah. often the government showing that they're, as you say, <laughs> they're spending that money somehow? There's both of those, yeah. Um, in the Isle of Man, um, what they do is when a signpost work, work, wears out, when they need a new one, the default is to make it bilingual. Uh, so it's kind of no-cost solution, okay? Um, no. um, um, and you could call it window dressing. Um, Adrian Kane, who is the former language officer in the Isle of Man, now teaches at the Manx Medium School, he said to me, well, basically, all that stuff is it, it, it's important, but if it doesn't actually affect how people behave if it doesn't make people want to use the language then it's failed in its in, in its in its um purpose yeah because yeah. the idea of uh, okay it's it's great to say yeah we have a language if you go around the island of man you see lots of stuff in manx um but you need to hear the language too
There are many ethical issues that come along with language revival which dictate and even limit the linguist's role in the whole process. Gilad Zuckerman has written a book called Revivalistics, which outlines a more all-encompassing way to revive languages. Can you explain a little bit about revivalistics? Yes. So revivalistics is very different from linguistics. It's so different that I would argue that many linguists could not be revivalists, or in fact, most linguists could never be revivalists. Let me show you something from uh, my book, which which answers a part of your... Here, Professor Zuckerman is showing us a diagram from his book, A Diamond, with each point a key component Uh, of language revival. It's a lard. Uh, It's lard. It's language language revival diamond for any successful language revival you need four components the first one are the custodians uh, or the language owners without them there is no language revival i do not believe in a laboratorial linguistic activity i do acknowledge the um presence or the existence of art lungs, you know, like Klingon, 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 or Klingon, it's pronounced. And uh, I have no problem with that. It's beautiful. Although sometimes I say to myself, why do these people, instead of kind of playing, which is wonderful, I'm not against it, but why don't they instead, or, or in addition to that, go and help Aboriginal people who desperately need clever linguists and revivalists? So, so the first thing is language owners. The second thing is a public sphere. Look, the public sphere is extremely important and totally neglected. So, for example, in Australia, no Aboriginal language is official. No Aboriginal. In fact, no language is official. Of course, English is de facto. In New Zealand, you have two um, official languages. One is te reo Māori, the language Māori. Te, the reo language Māori, Māori. And the other one is uh, the uh, sign language, the deaf, the deaf language, the New Zealand sign language. English is not the Yure, it's not the Yure official language of New Zealand, but it's de facto. We all know that. When a Maori would like to speak Maori in the parliament, no problem whatsoever. In Australia, you're not allowed to speak uh, Pijanjara or Walbury. You're not allowed because it's against the bureaucracy and it's against the idea that only English is allowed. I believe that this is an abomination. I think that Aboriginal languages should be defined as official languages of their region. So there should be 401 official languages of Australia, 400 Aboriginal, one uh, the Auslan, the Australian uh, Sign Language. And also, I believe that there should be laws in the public sphere of uh, double signage. So the landscape, the linguistic landscape, should become uh, very visibly Aboriginal. So Port Lincoln should be also Galignala. Currently, you go to Port Lincoln, it doesn't say Galignala. I can can tell you because I go there every month. Um, The same with uh, Port Augusta, Gunada. Wayala is actually an, a Bangala name. It's Wayala. So, you know, you don't need maybe just a different spelling, but it's okay. It doesn't mean why Allah, you know, like uh, when I first went there, somebody said, why Allah, you know, like why why God, why Islamic God? It's Wayala. So uh, public sphere is important. The, the third thing is education. Without pedagogues, you cannot do language revival. And pedagogues are not necessarily linguists. And as you know, Linguists often are very bad pedagogues. Um, I can I don't want to give you um, examples of 
famous linguists who are very bad in talking or we have one <laughs> which one which one well we we both just read a new yorker piece about uh the frank siebert who uh i was talking about a recent new yorker article by alice gregory about frank siebert a brilliant linguist who was nevertheless pretty paternalistic and even dictatorial in his approach to reviving the penobscot language Everything he wrote about the grammar and oral history of the Penobscot tribe ended up as essentially intellectual property, which was bequeathed to the American Philosophical Society when he died. People who speak it, who are who are quite a small group, uh, even at this point, uh, do not own the copyright of their language. It's so funny. I mean, this is kind of against uh, the law that I know because the Aboriginal people that I work with, they own the language. So I'm just a facilitator. So if, for example, they tell me that I'm not allowed to neologize, then I don't neologize. If they tell me I'm not allowed to speak, I don't speak because it's their language, which is, by the way, very different. By the way, neologizing is making up new words for things the old speakers just didn't have, like microwaves. But it's also about the way the language evolves generally and who gets to make those decisions. But Aboriginal people own their language. And there is also a trap here because some Aboriginal people say, oh, we own the language. We don't need to use it. We already own it. And this is counter-revivalistic. And in fact, it's kind of sui linguicide. It's uh, not suicide, not linguicide. It's sui linguicide. It's like self-language killing, which is a fascinating topic. And maybe one day, if I have time, I will write a book about Sui linguicide, because, you know, when you revive languages all over the world, and I've, I've, I've been to 100 countries, and, you know, I mean, COVID, of course, is a pain in the ass, as you know, but, um, but uh, you know, I like going in situ, being in situ. When you revive a language, you learn that a language revivalist needs, um, like, a heart of gold, um, um, balls of steel. Uh, of course, it can be a woman. I mean, uh, Margaret Thatcher had balls, in, in metaphorically speaking. And and you need to have the patience of a crocodile uh, or, or of a saint, depending on whether or not you know how patient a crocodile is. I mean, extremely patient. So so you need to, uh, you, you see everything. You see, like, the most disadvantaged people on earth. You see suicide attempts. You see violence. You see aggression. Because don't forget, when you lose your language, you lose your intellectual sovereignty, you lose your cultural autonomy, you lose your spirituality, you, you, you lose your well-being, you lose your health, and you lose your soul. So, of course, you expect these people whose language was linguistic to be, unfortunately, um, disadvantaged, unprivileged, sometimes depressed, sometimes violent. So, so I mean, there, it's not like uh, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to realize that. And, and coming back to... Um, to, to the to the diamond the fourth one is of course linguistics without linguists you cannot revive a language so well, I should probably say without linguistics you cannot revive a language but this this what these uh, four quadrants constitute revivalistics revivalistics is a transdisciplinary field of inquiry it is not only linguistics it's also pedagogy it's also uh, law you know, is it the case that Aboriginal people should be compensated for the loss of language? Of course they should. Why should they be compensated for the loss of land and not for the loss of language? Let's not forget, language is much more important than land. I but think Make them pay for revitalizing the language is what you exactly, mean. Exactly, because, because Aboriginal people in Australia, in, in Brazil, they have to fight for a very small uh, kind of basket of grants 
and now more and more people understand the importance of revivalistics. So, you know, it's it's the same $10 million, but now instead of having, say, 50, now we have 200. The stuff you do in, in Australia is some of it's very general and, and sort of civic, but the, but the one specific thing you do is with a, a, a Barangala, Barangala? I'm, I'm going to mispronounce this in front of a linguist. Uh, Bangala. 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 Yeah. Um, language, uh, which was which we've spoken a bit about, but my my understanding is that it was pretty much extinct in the sense that no, there were no native speakers when you started. Yes, there were. There had not been native speakers for uh, fifty years when we started ten years ago. So when I got the five Aboriginal representatives of the Bangala people in this in this office, just just where I am now. It's kind of hard to believe, but uh, I asked them, look, I found this um, this book that I showed you earlier, this book, yeah, written by Clamor Wilhelm Schumann. Uh, the dictionary, yeah. The book he's referring to is a rudimentary dictionary containing 3,500 words, written by a German missionary in 1844. Yeah, he wanted to Christianize you. I'm a secular Jew, an atheist. And uh, I would like to use this German uh, Christian book in order to assist you, Aboriginal Bangala people, to right the wrong of the past conducted to you by Anglo-Celtic colonizers. So it's kind of a UNESCO um, UNESCO endeavor. I think I can do it if you're interested. And their response was, quote, we've been waiting for you for 50 years. <laughs> And when they say that, when they said that, I decided to do it. Uh, and I decided to give myself 10 years. And we are actually, as it happens, we are having this interview exactly before the end of the 10 years. So the 10 years, it's, uh, I think, 14th of September 2021. It will mark the 10 years for the, for, for the office, for this office uh, meeting with the five Aboriginal Bangla people. And this is when I'm going to pass the button to uh, one of the Bangala people. Um, you know, I really want to distance myself because I, I don't believe that you need to be kind of a, like, I don't believe that Aboriginal people should depend on white on non-Aboriginal people. I think that they should do it. So I don't like the pedagogues that kind of, who are not the uh, part of the group who kind of take credit for the language and, you know, and is, they, that, is that a linguist role generally? Do you think that they have to step back at some point when you're revitalizing languages, that it's important that at some point it uh, gets taken over by yeah, the people I who mean, speak it? I think that what happens, I have seen many examples of people who um, became kind of almost like missionaries in the sense of yeah, I am the Messiah and I am, I don't know, it's cheesy. It's kind of, uh, you know, I don't, it's kind of yeah. I don't want to give you to give you examples, but I could mention like ten ten examples of people who are proud to be the only knowers of the language, and they're not even part of the language. Or the worst is the last, the the only person who speaks the language because uh, he did not do or she did not do anything in order to uh, revitalize it before he died. So this is a so this is anti-revivalistic. It's very linguistic, you see, because linguistics puts the language at the center, whereas revivalistics puts the custodians at the center, the language owners at the center. So it's a totally different 
F ethos. It's it's a totally different ethos. So, for example, when when the Aboriginal community wants the language to be this way, even though it is against the linguistics that I know, I have no right to force the linguistics of the language. So, when I told them that Warna 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 is the stomach, it's the belly, it's the seat of emotions, and they told me now. We feel that the heart is the seat of emotions. I said, no, I know in Bangala, it's the seat of emotions is Warna because I've analyzed the entire dictionary. I, I know it by heart. I've read everything. And I gave, I gave them 10 examples of Warna, Warna, you know, Warna. And uh, they didn't, they didn't want to, they didn't want to, uh, to have their Warna. And they wanted the heart. And they told me, who the fuck do you think you are? Yeah, who the fuck, who the fuck do you think you are? And we are Aboriginal people. We know where the seat of emotions is. Now, it's very interesting because I know that they believe that the seat of emotions is the heart because of the colonizer's language, namely English. Because in English, I'm heartbroken. I retracted it, and next time I talked about, you know, and then I wanted them to induce for my, you know, to do induction, to induct. Uh, from my uh, from my examples that oh shit yeah it's Warna that is the seat of emotion so I didn't tell them I wanted them to find out on their own so um, uh, this is exactly what you need so revivalistics is so complex and I cannot tell that I have found all the secrets I think that I need to do a lot more in order to know so like some Aboriginal people do not like my bluntness. Um, you know, they prefer, they prefer, I mean, they prefer me to be more kind of Aussie, um, because they are used to that kind of, uh, you know, so, you know, like it's, it's not a perfect uh, journey. It's not a perfect journey. At the beginning, besides the dictionary from 1844, what else did you have to go on? This dictionary at the beginning has also a grammar, which is very, uh, it's only, I'll tell you, it's only 22 pages, but I have made it 1,500 uh, power sli- uh, PowerPoint slides, these mm-hmm. 22 pages. So I needed to practically decipher the grammar, look at many other languages that are related. Some of them are alive and kicking. So this is a historical linguistic work, which is, I mean, uh, gargantuan, really, gargantuan. There are, we've we've talked about some successes, not least your successes. Uh, But there are something like, according to most estimates, something like 7,000 languages in the world. And, but, 50% 50% of the population speaks one of the top 20. Uh, and and there's, there are some pretty depressing estimates that that maybe half of those languages will be gone by the end of the century. And I've heard worse than half, you know, more than half. Um, uh, are we going to lose this battle? I mean, are we, are we you know, are we going to end up a linguistically non-diverse globe or can we save it? So... Absolutely, I believe the the, the grim um, predictions of ninety percent loss within one hundred years, and uh, and uh, it's not only fifty percent of people speak twenty percent of language; it's also ninety six percent of uh, people speak four percent of languages. You know, I mean, there are many 
uh, except that the percentage is not the most important thing. It's the, sorry, uh, it's the percentage of the children within the specific tribe. So if the percentage is 100%, even if uh, there are only 3,000 speakers, uh, the language is alive and kicking, and it's going to uh, to continue. And I have, I can give you some examples of 10 million speakers, but the language is severely endangered because it's only like two percent of the kids within the within the group. So, so these numbers are not necessarily relevant. What is relevant is vis-a-vis the specific tribe. What is the percentage of kids? And this is the second answer. These are big numbers, and there are some people who have a an, kind of an ignition of a fluorescent. So they, they 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 don't care about their language disappearing. But maybe the third generation will say, "Oh shit, my surname sounds like that. Maybe I am like that." Wait a second, I'm going to the university. Which university teaches this language? None, because of neoliberalism, they killed all the linguistics and departments. Given the number of languages set to be lost over the coming century, we certainly should be recording and documenting as many as possible as Julia Salabank said. But despite the bleak outlook, reclamation work like that pioneered by Gilad Zuckerman means that we should never really write off a language as dead. Except Latin. When I revive languages, I see the effect on the specific group. And sometimes it happens after the language is is a cactus. So it's like, what I'm saying is that I... Obviously, unfortunately, we will not have that pill. Um, I told my middle son that he asked me when my father died. My, when my father died four, four years ago, he asked me, "Daddy, when you are old, like like Saba, will you all will you also die?" And I told him, "No. When I'm old, there will be a, a pill that uh, that I can take, and I will live forever." So my son said, "Daddy." Please do not forget to take the pill. You know, like uh, <laughs> he, he said it to me. He, he's such a such an uh, an adorable. Uh, so this is in Israeli, right? I, I speak to them in Israeli. So um, so I'm saying that this book will be, or, or, or the books that will be based on the on these books on this book will be used in 200 years to revive a language that is alive and kicking today and it will die within 100 years. So revivalistics, in a way, is the science of the future. And I believe that, not of the present, uh, or, or not yet of the present, and I believe that many linguistics departments that will close down due to the humanities suffering big time in the West will be replaced by revivalistic departments. So, yeah, so um, I think that I am pessimistic about language loss, but I am optimistic about revivalistics. I think we will see more and more languages being lost, but also we will see more and more languages being revived. So I don't think that it's a lost cause. Absolutely not. On the contrary, I think that the more language loss there is, the more place, the more space there is for revivalistics. Thank you for listening to Insult My Intelligence. And thanks to my guests, Professors Gilad Zuckerman and Julius Salabank. Next week, we'll be talking about NFTs. And if you don't know what an NFT is, you ain't alone.
Please leave us a rating and review. You can follow us on Twitter at InsultMyIntel. And if you have an idea or a topic for an episode, do email us at insultmyintelshow at gmail.com.